When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome back. I hope y'all are well. You're listening to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is good to see you here today. How have you been? What's new? Let me tell you, I am thrilled for you to listen to this episode because it is a topic that I could talk about all day and I could listen to other people talk about all day. We are talking today with Gabrielle Canyon. She is a California-based reporter who has written for The Guardian, Vice, The Huffington Post. And Gabrielle's reporting largely focuses on the drought and fire of the American West. I followed Gabrielle on Twitter a little over a year ago, and I've always just really appreciated the work that she puts out. I like reading what she writes because she does this incredible job of focusing on both issues and solutions. She doesn't talk about issues in silos, which I think is really important and a really special way to talk about anything in the climate crisis. But I really, really wanted to talk to Gabrielle about water policy, about drought, about wildfires, because it is really hard to get a full picture of all of these issues in a short period of time. These are super complex problems that people spend their entire lives trying to understand, trying to research, trying to better in some way. And Gabrielle has this really incredible bird's eye view on the situation of the American West and the drought because of the nature of her work. Done some great case studies on cities in particular. We talked today about Las Vegas, which is a case study that I love to talk about in the water crisis. She talks more deeply about wildfires and how certain communities are affected by them. She talks about the rules of the drought. What does it mean to subsidize water? What does water policy look like in the West? What's wrong with water policy in the West? So all to say that all of her work has this really wonderful holistic lens for us to discuss all of these issues today. And it's a really good conversation if I do say so myself. I feel like I learned so much from Gabrielle and I am really thankful to have the opportunity to have a fluid conversation about water issues. Oh, that's like kind of funny, a fluid conversation about water issues. But anyway, I love the opportunity to just bounce around these topics because there's so many nuances to the issue of the mega drought of the American West. I've touched on some of them already. You're going to hear about some of them today. But there is so much to unpack. There's so many little communities or little pockets of the issues that you could deep dive on and really hone in on all the details. But today we had a great conversation that's an excellent primer, whether you are intimately familiar with the issue of the drought of the American West, or this is the first time that you're really diving into the topic. I think this is a cool conversation to have because it gives you a lot of opportunity to find something that you're passionate about and learn more about. I will say that here on EcoChic, we have touched on some of these topics in the past on deep dive episodes or with other experts. So for example, we've done episodes on compact extreme events or emergency management. We haven't talked too extensively about water, but I did do an episode on the mega drought last summer if you just want basic information about what a mega drought even is. So there's a lot of opportunity for you to deep dive here on this podcast feed. But I also really encourage you to look into your local community. We talked today a little bit about the value of hyper local climate solutions. And I feel like this is a really fun 
area for you to deep dive wherever you are listening from, whether you are in the American West or not. It's just a cool way to think about climate solutions when you're thinking about the personality of your community and what you need and what your community really needs to thrive in the face of more extreme weather events, in the face of resource scarcity. There is just so many solutions out there on the table. And again, I love the way that Gabrielle presents all of these issues in tandem with solutions and highlights. So I think you'll really like this conversation. I think you'll find it valuable. I hope you learn a little something. If you enjoy it, share it in your group chat, share this episode with your family, share it on your Instagram story, tag me at Podcast. All of my links are always in the show notes. I'm pretty active on social these days. I am on Instagram and TikTok and anywhere that you want to connect with me, I want to connect with y'all. I want to know what you think of the episodes, but I also want to hear about what you want to hear about next. This is a really fun time for me to create the show during the summertime and to be thinking about current events. And I know that y'all like the current event episodes and I like them too because it gives me the opportunity to hear from experts in the field. And especially in the climate space, I feel like there's never been a better time to tap into experts and learn about solutions and really relate those to our day-to-day lives. So all that to say, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for hanging out with Gabrielle. Let's get into it. All things drought, water policy, wildfires in the American West with Gabrielle Canyon. Gabrielle, welcome to Eco Chic. I'm excited to have you today. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I would love us to first set the scene a little bit for the audience because drought is something that feels a little far away and intangible for a lot of us. Can you set the scene for us? What is the current situation when it comes to the drought of the American West? Ooh, so this is, I mean, this is a big question, right? So we, I think the things that are most dramatically apparent, people can see big bathtub rings around some of our landmarks, especially like me, like Powell. And I think those are the things that certainly have made headlines, have been sort of this way for people to connect with drought when they're not being impacted directly. But from where we are right now, so I'm in California. California is facing incredibly dry third year to this devastating drought. We're going into the spring and summer months, which of course we're going to be expecting things warming up pretty quickly here with a severely reduced snowpack. Now it's only what? It's about 31% of what it normally would be at this time of the year. So obviously that's a pretty shocking number. And what that means, I mean, you can envision the snowpack sort of like, sort of like a savings account, right? So we have all of this snow and it slowly melts over these warming months and it feeds our streams and rivers and reservoirs. And we rely on that to get us through these really dry seasons. So knowing that we're just gonna go in with like what, roughly a third of what we normally would, already we're setting the stage for a dramatically dry summer and autumn. And when we say dramatically dry, I feel like for a lot of folks, it takes a second to even connect that to mean fire season and a really severe fire season. You think of your life broken up into seasons, but realizing that a really dry winter means a really dry fire season Mm -hmm. is also really scary for a lot of folks because it becomes this really awful self-fueling cycle where we will continue to see really severe impacts of weather across Mm -hmm. the country. Absolutely. And, And I think it kind of brings up this issue. I mean, what I've done some work around 
the idea of compounding catastrophes, right? It's a very sounding, scary sounding phrase, but so basically just taking that step back, right? To talk a little bit more about the role that climate change is playing and just the science. So if we set ourselves up, we already know that temperatures are rising and we know that places like California, other states across the West have cycles of dryness. We have seasons when it rains and seasons when it is a little bit, you know, more dry and also periods when there's less rain and that's normal. But when you bring in a lot of this extra heat, then what ends up happening, of course, I mean, we've all experienced this just in ourselves, right? On a hot day, you take a little bit more water, cool yourself down. Maybe when, you know, you're getting out of a pool, the way that like that water evaporates off, you can kind of connect to it that way. in that sense of knowing that when the heat rises, um, not only does it going to take these, these ecosystems and landscapes are going to require more water, but they're also going to lose water a lot more quickly. And so when that kind of component comes into play, you see that heat increases the drought. But what we also know is that drought in turn increases heat. And so with these two components together, we're setting ourselves up for, for this uh, sort of cyclical increase. In, in both rising temperatures and drier conditions. And of course, those two things together created the perfect recipe for increased fire risk. We know that fires are almost always caused by people. There are you know, accidents. There are obviously to a far, far, far lesser degree. We, people like to focus on you know, people who intentionally set fires. That's actually very, very rare. But Obviously, when you have people living in environments that are closer to these drier landscapes with these higher fire risks, yeah, we're setting ourselves up for another season of potentially record-breaking blazes, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a, a really, really intense summer. It is going to be an intense summer, and I'm glad that you touched on the fact that very few fires are intentionally started. We're not looking at arsonists creating wildfires or taking out entire towns. This is a windy day carrying the embers from a campfire or someone throwing a cigarette out the window and it's just been a really dry summer, and here we have a small wildfire. And realizing that these fires are so easy to set is really intimidating when we're also pairing that with drought, with really strained emergency management, the the uh, care for a lot of these events is also really strained. So it creates this interesting sense of fear in anticipation. You know that we will likely be having wildfires this summer in the area. And how are we going to best prepare for that? And can we best prepare for that? So on the community side, it's a really intimidating, uncomfortable place to be when you know it's a matter of time. Yeah. But, and so that's, that's definitely an, an area that I, I really want to get into more with my reporting, right? So, so much of my focus is, is on these disasters and the impacts they're having and the ways in which the climate crisis is contributing to increase of these risks. But from what I've found, especially in the last few fire seasons, there are actually really impactful ways that we can mitigate these risks. I think first and foremost, what we've learned about landscape management. And so obviously knowing that, that cli the climate crisis is setting the stage, right? But, but land management is a huge component. And especially when you look into areas in, in like 
the Pacific Northwest, in Northern California, and in these heavily forested places where mostly driven by by industry and you know community beliefs in that fire is bad, right? And and obviously fire is a scary thing, especially these big infernos that we're seeing, these big wildfires. But for thousands of years before white settlers came to these lands, uh, indigenous nations were using fire as a tool to help the landscapes heal and regenerate, clearing out underbrush. And when that fire was taken off the land, of course, these trees, these forests became far too dense. Then you see with the effects of climate change and also because of this density, more tree death, there's more disease, there's more obviously because there's not enough water. And so all of these trees are now turning into tinder, fueling these fires, changing the fire behavior and making them a lot more difficult to contain it and fight, which I think has been sort of a growing issue. But finally, I think a lot of our policy leaders are starting to come around to this idea. I mean, some there's still there are still battles, you know, there's still some uh, who want to tamp down fires as soon as they start, even even the good kind. But we are starting to see a little bit more of a push to invest in in treatments that clear the land, that restore these landscapes to what they were before logging and and other settlements came in and put them at higher risk. Getting good fire on the land is really important. And then even if you kind of take this more individualistic approach, there are communities who are now able to band together. Ultimately in a fire, you're only as safe as your neighbor's property, right? If whatever they've done on their land and so it's been really inspiring to see some communities have planned, you know, evacuation routes and have gotten, there's something called FireWise and, and they come through and they certify you and help you clear things from your home, especially trees, overhanging trees. Anyways, I could ramble on about this stuff forever because I'm like, you know, seeing the devastation firsthand and knowing that as much as we were at a point where it is going to be really difficult to turn some of these bigger picture things around. There are some short-term solutions that can actually have a huge impact. Zooming out a bit, I've got kind of a juicy question for you. You mentioned (laughs) policymakers and we opened up this conversation with the drought of the American West. And it's definitely important to note, and I'm glad we walked through the value of snowpack and what this means down the road. But we also know that a large influence on the drought we currently have is water policy in the West. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about water policy. We could talk about damming. We could talk about subsidies. There is so much that goes into this. So take your pick and I'm ready to do a deep dive. Yeah. I mean, so this is the big question, right? And this is the one that is like, can make your head spin. It is so complicated and so important, right? And and it's one of these issues that I think, you know, most people don't get to dig into too often because it's just this giant mess of layers and history and stakeholders. But I think for me, one of the big things that that I think a lot of people don't don't realize or don't recognize with these issues is that the ways that these laws were written, the ways that these agreements were come to, because people across the West, even though, yes, we're all even in one country, we're not even going to like talk about packs between two different countries, which, which is obviously an issue, but even just looking at one country, you know, we all think we're in the same boat, but between states, yeah, people have different, even, even within states, people have different rights to water, but 
The catch is that when a lot of these rights were issued, and even still to today, the rights are still being issued, they're being written on water that doesn't exist. Quick break, I'm always looking for an extra way to help offset my carbon footprint, but it can be really difficult to figure out where to start until I found Ren. Ren is a startup that's making it easy for everyone to make meaningful difference in the climate crisis. Right now, they're focused on monthly subscriptions where you can calculate your carbon footprint, then offset it by supporting awesome climate projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, and invest in other cool climate solutions. Their goal is to unlock the collective action of millions of individuals to drive systemic change needed to end the climate crisis. We talk a lot about climate change on this show, and I've shared quite a few personal anecdotes in today's conversation, but also in conversations we've had in the past about how climate change is impacting me and communities that I really care about. It can be a little overwhelming to always be talking about big-scale solutions or policy change, but making sure that my lifestyle aligns with those same values is really, really powerful and makes me so much more confident in my role in part of the solution. Ren is a website where you can calculate your personal carbon footprint based on your lifestyle, then offset it by funding projects that plant trees, protect rainforests, sequester CO2, and more. Signing up for Ren is an easy way to do something meaningful about the climate crisis. Ren practices hyper-transparency. I really love this. Once you sign up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you'll receive monthly updates about that particular tree that you're planning or that rainforest protection project that you are supporting funding. You can even see the exact coordinates of that tree that you're planting, like I mentioned earlier. It's going to take all of us to end the climate crisis. Do your part today by signing up for Ren. Go to wren.co slash eco chic, sign up, and they'll plant 10 extra trees in your name. That's wren.co slash eco chic. Start making a difference. Thank you, Ren. We're also supported today by HelloFresh. Get farm fresh seasonal produce and easy to make recipes delivered right to your door every week. Ingredients travel from the farm to your doorstep in under a week, so they always arrive fresh, all without a trip to the grocery store or the farmer's market. I've shared before how I love HelloFresh, especially if I'm traveling or if I'm just cooking for myself that week. There is so much convenience in HelloFresh. Not only do the ingredients come pre-portioned so you're not overbuying and you're not wasting food, but it's easier than ever to get filling meals on the table in a snap with options like family-friendly or quick and easy recipes. I'm someone who really likes to be in the kitchen. I find it very therapeutic to just chop vegetables sometimes. I personally order the HelloFresh vegetarian options, but on weeks where, again, like I'm traveling, I don't have time to get to the grocery store, or I want to make a new recipe, but I don't necessarily want all the food waste that comes along with buying tons of little tiny ingredients that I'm only going to use once. I also love that HelloFresh has really diverse menus, and they do seasonal recipes, so I feel like there's always something new to try out. You can pick your favorites from 50 different weekly options, and you can skip weeks when you need to change, change your delivery date, update your preferences, all within the HelloFresh app. It is really, really easy. You can customize your favorite dishes with their new Hello Custom offers by swapping out one protein or a side for something else. You can upgrade for a more luxe experience, even adding protein to a veggie meal. You have more choices, more variety, more meals that are truly tailored to you. Go to HelloFresh.com slash EcoChic16 and use code EcoChic16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. 
That's HelloFresh.com slash EcoChic16 and use code EcoChic16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. I think for me, that's the craziest part. Like we talk about water as an imaginary resource in America. Exactly. And it's this wild thing that, you know, when these models were made, first of all, back then there was a lot more water. And also with the science wasn't where it is now and understanding how things sort of ebb and flow with precipitation and with, you know, snowpack, all of these things. But anyway, so they create these agreements, which was mostly these white men who were like, cool, we came here and we're just going to divvy up this essential resource and completely disregard all the people who were there before. So that was this whole other component that the people who are left out of these agreements. So they mismanaged the water. They misunderstood that what water was available. They left people out of the negotiating room. And I think they completely would have had their minds blown to know how many people would be living here now and the industry that would pop up and the agriculture that would be feeding not only localities, but the nation and the world. And so these agreements that still exist today and are trying, they're trying to adjudicate water rights based on these old agreements that really have just created a big mess of things. And so even if you look at like the Colorado River, right, it's one of the biggest ones. It was recently named the most endangered river in the country. And it's one of the most I mean, this is a river that what supplies millions of people with waters. For the Colorado River, 36 million people rely on drinking water from the Colorado River. Four million acres of land is irrigated with the waters of the Colorado River. That's 15% of the nation's crops. And, you know, it's this incredible resource that is now incredibly endangered because it's been overdrawn and abused. And so you see ecosystems suffer, but we're also putting our own future in peril. Um, these are these are problems that need to be solved. And yet, I mean, even when you look locally at, at water policy issues, it's really difficult for folks to come to agreement because obviously this is something that's an incredibly important resource and it's growing incredibly scarce. And so what's becoming, I think, a high, that one of the highest priorities in solving these problems is also increasingly more difficult as things become drier. Thank you so much for walking through those numbers with us. I think that when you're putting the value of a resource in the perspective of how many people are relying on a river for clean drinking water, that gives it a whole other perspective because we're not just talking about water subsidies so that we can grow strawberries in California. Like this is life and death. This is what is sustaining entire cities, entire communities across states. And I think the gravity of that is very easily lost because of how Americans pay for water. And we really have this false sense of the cost of a lot of natural resources. So we say this about water. We can say it about gasoline. We can say it about anything that we incorrectly assume a price for, you know, beef, things that are heavily subsidized in America. We take for granted the price when it goes up a little bit, we're upset or still not taking in those environmental impacts to the larger cost of a resource. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about the Colorado River specifically, I think that when we say entire communities are threatened by this, and then we're coupling that with the concept of climate change, 
there are communities that can't exist without reliable supply from the Colorado River. I'm thinking of Phoenix, Arizona. Like Phoenix gets to 115 degrees in the summertime. What would Phoenix do without the Colorado River? Could people Mm -hmm. still realistically live there? There is so much to unpack with how people live day to day in the West. And again, how we think about water. Why is it that we farm in certain places? Why is it that the Colorado River can sustain 15% of American crops when it is the driest area of the country? There's just so much to unpack with like this very serious distance that Americans have with water. Absolutely. And even just this idea, you know, we think of water so directly, right, in our water use. And we think, okay, we know about the drought. Maybe I'm going to cut my shower in half or, you know, try to use these these techniques. Like I'm I'm hoping people now know to turn the water off when they brush their teeth, you know, things like that. But I think even like you said, it's just connected to to areas of our lives that we don't even consider. I mean, the clothes that we wear, like the types of fashion that we choose can be really water intensive. The food that we eat, clearly those decisions are going to impact our use. And I thought, you know, it's so interesting you're bringing up Phoenix and, and I, I actually did a big story on Las Vegas and I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm so yeah. excited to talk about that because I love Las Vegas as a case study mm-hmm. for water resources. Right. And it's this fascinating situation where obviously we know Las Vegas is in the desert and it's grown, just it's pushing the boundaries every minute, right. Of, of they're just pushing deeper and deeper into the desert in terms of sprawl in terms of, you know, residential, just, just kind of climbing into these more rural or, or wild landscapes. And what's interesting is that this is a place that temperatures are rising among the fastest. And of course, as we already talked about and the way that heat affects water, this is going to pose a huge problem, not only for the people who are already there, but a lot of people are moving there. I mean, this is like, for whatever reason, looking for cheaper housing, new opportunities. I mean, they're expecting their population to almost double in just the next three decades. And so not only looking for a new space to to house all these new people, but how are they going to deliver on their water goals? And in Las Vegas, to its credit, the water agency there is, is actually incredibly forward thinking in terms of its recycling and its use. And they've they've definitely come a really long way in terms of conservation, but they're in this position where they have to bring their usage down. They're looking at their, their resources that are obviously like everyone else in the situation growing scarce. And this just flood of new people, forgive the pun, not intended. (laughs) Um, And so they're trying to reduce their usage while their consumption is going to go up. So they're certainly facing some really difficult decisions out there. Yeah, I think Las Vegas is an interesting example to talk about water also because when we think of Las Vegas, the immediate thought as a regular consumer is the strip. Mm -hmm. And when I first was thinking about water policy and I was in school really learning about these things for the first time, please correct me if I'm wrong and please tell me if this no longer exists, but there was some sort of law or policy that casinos and these resorts have to have some water conservation plan for every resort and every pool and every day club and all of this. And when we think about consumption for fun, like we were originally talking about agriculture and sustaining cities, and now we're talking about water for the sake of entertainment, creating these policies are 
hyper-local. Like it makes so much sense for Las Vegas as a city to have these water conservation policies for resorts. And then on top of that, all of these resort fees that the cities require, if you're staying at one of these resorts on the strip, those resort fees go to fund a lot of these conservation projects. So it's like a really interesting, like you said, forward thinking, but also again, hyper-local. We talk a lot about climate solutions on a global scale. And then we also talk about this need for them to make sense for a particular community. And so Las Vegas is a great place to have solar panels, but on another level, we need to talk about water conservation. And they're an awesome example of, again, hyper-local, really personal. And just taking it one step further, sorry, just what you were saying about urban sprawl, I believe it's something like 80 or 85% of the state of Nevada is indigenous land and BLM land. Like there really isn't Mm-hmm. that many places for people to go. Mm-hmm. It's Las Vegas and Reno, really. So when you think about these suburbs having to all kind of go in on the same climate solutions or water solutions, Las Vegas is a really cool way to think about doing it for your community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they have been a leader and certainly a lot of other areas are looking to them to say, okay, how did how did Las Vegas figure this out? I mean, just the way that they're situated, they have this advantage that they're able to, they like very early on were able to, to run these recycling plants. So almost all the water that goes down the drain in your hotel room or in your home when you're living in Las Vegas does come back through the system and is recycled. And so that's why they're able to be as conserving as, as they have been. But, you know, I think you kind of brought up a really important point in looking at how these issues are local and are addressed locally. And and I think that's one of the things that has in some ways made this more complicated, right? Because some communities are doing this really great job in using their resources and other communities aren't. And then for a long time, they're trying to change some of these, these laws, but for a long time, the law of the West was you use it or you lose it. <laughs> and it was incredibly problematic because it incentivized the use of scarce resources, water. And so at least that's now starting to change. But, you know, looking at Las Vegas as a leader, they still are obviously trying to tap into supply just it's far from city, far from their communities, um, looking into areas that, you know, other folks think will take the water right out from under their feet. I mean, there was this really controversial pipeline that the agencies in, in Las Vegas, they finally pulled out from, but they still own rights out there. So that's still sort of an issue on the table. And then sort of on a similar beat, some of the things that are, that's happening in Utah, like Utah, unlike <laughs> what we've seen in, in areas of Nevada and Las Vegas, like they haven't done as good of a job at using what they've got in resourceful ways of making sure people are aware of this declining resource and how to conserve. And so there's been a lot of controversy with the ways that they've issued their rights, with the ways that, you know, certain communities are pumping aquifers and are exploring new pipelines into to groundwater that has never even been removed from these systems. So there's still a lot of speculation with a lot of potential bad consequences. This episode of EcoChic is sponsored by Oregon State University eCampus, a national leader in online education that is committed to helping people everywhere make an impact, just like Sakota Douglas. Growing up in a small village in Guyana, Sakota had dreams that were bigger than her surroundings. To protect her native home from those who would exploit its natural resources, she called on someone passionate enough to do something about it, herself. By earning a bachelor's degree in environmental economics and policy online with Oregon State, Sakota learned how and why policies are made. 
Now she's driven to help pass legislation that benefits the environment and communities, both large and small. Just like Sakota, you can turn the study of the environment, plants, or animals into a rewarding new career. Gaining the skills you need to help protect our natural world in one of Oregon State's online programs in conservation and natural sciences. OSU eCampus is consistently ranked one of the nation's 10 best providers of online education. Learn more about how you can make an impact on the world around you at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash ecochic. Again, that's ecampus.oregonstate.ecochic. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because there's never going to be a perfect system. Like there's no city that is a great golden child case study for other cities to replicate. And even just thinking about yeah, the comparison of Utah and how there are so many states that just haven't quite figured out the water policy that's right for them yet is really concerning, again, from this perspective of fires and droughts and then even recreation. I'm thinking of these viral photos of Lake Powell in southern Utah and these really heartbreaking photos at Lone Rock Beach which made me so sad. That's like probably my favorite campsite I've ever been to in the whole world. And these photos, if a listener hasn't seen them yet, are of this time last year, the lake was full, you could boat, you could raft, you could enjoy this area of the lake. And now it is quite literally dry. Like there is nothing, nothing there. Thinking about Lake Powell, once I started diving a little bit deeper on these Twitter threads, a lot of Lake Powell is, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's, uh, it's filled through the Glen Canyon Dam. And the intention of that area of Lake Powell was that eventually in 100 years, it was actually going to dry up. And it's just happened a lot earlier than expected. And that was really scary to read because that means like all of this is intentional. We know we're using up too much water. We know that we're cutting our supplies short and manipulating these, of course, these natural flows of rivers that need to be manipulated to some extent for communities. But we've gone so far that we are literally waiting for rivers and lakes to dry up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, you brought up an important point too. We talk a lot about people not realizing the impact of the drought or people not knowing how dire it's gotten, right? But then you look at certain case studies and you look at Cedar City, right, which is a town in Utah that is literally sinking. (laughs) <laughs> because they've pumped out so much of their, their groundwater, like in this underground aquifer. And instead of sort of saying, okay, like we really got to get our act together, uh, no more lawns, you know, they're saying, okay, where can we get more water? And obviously it's more complicated than that. Obviously folks in Cedar City are, there are people who are struggling, their costs are going up. A lot of the public officials think there aren't enough resources for them to you know, tamp down on, on lawns or on, on other high usage. But ultimately what it comes down to is now they have these rights in areas that they are, that they believe it's like, oh, nobody's using this water. It's under the ground and we have the rights to it. So we're just going to create this pipeline. They're waiting to get BLM approval because that's going to go across some, some public lands. But what climate advocates and, and other scientists, even scientists at the USGS, have found that these underground networks that have never been pumped are all connected. And so this could have potential impacts even across state lines. And so we think about the decisions made either at a state level or community level can have these far reaching impacts that can affect people completely different jurisdictions. And so again, it just speaks to the complexity of figuring out these problems 
on a community level and on, a, on an individual level, but also trying to address them more comprehensively. Do you have a favorite conservation solution? Is there something that a city is doing that you're really impressed by or that a community is advocating for? Mm, that is such a great question. I wish I had a great answer for you. I mean, I think that, yeah, I'm constantly on the lookout for those types of stories. I think they're really powerful. So I'm just about to embark on doing a, a bit of a feature on something called Puta Creek in Davis. This is some place that this was one of these dry, dusty creek beds that used to be this flourishing habitat. And they were able to restore it as this incredible success story. And of course, they're now facing a lot of the same impacts that the rest of the region is in terms of fire runoff and burn scar and, and drought levels. And, and they had a big salmon die off earlier, like earlier this year and in that big rain event that happened at the end of last year. But yeah, I think those stories are out there and I think they're incredibly important to focus on. I think that especially as journalists and people in the media, it is really essential that we not only tell the story of these really devastating impacts, but also of the people who are doing important things to restore habitat and to, you know, be models of conservation. I think ultimately the, some of the lessons I've learned too is just that we need to be listening to Indigenous people who know this land, who's part of their culture to know this land. We need to be looking at the history of what the habitats once were, but also, again, understanding just the ways in which the conditions are going to only intensify as we get into the next few decades. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of be at this point in time where we're looking forward while also looking back. I have a bit of a personal question to follow up all of these really deep conversations about drought and fire and life in the West. How do you take care of yourself as a journalist so deep in this work writing these headlines, deeply having to understand these stories of devastation and damages and fear. What does self-care look like for you operating in that space day to day? Thank you for this question. I mean, the short answer is it's hard. <laughs> and I think it's something that we all should be talking about more. I think it's terrifying, right? And it certainly the way that you sort of envision the future and your own responsibilities, I think I've constantly been trying to understand my role as a storyteller and, you know, the importance of both, like we just said, highlighting solutions along with the problems. But when it comes down to it, I think, you know, taking that step back, connecting with other people who are doing really impressive and inspiring work, that kind of helps me keep my head on straight a little bit <laughs> and just trying to focus on this opportunity of, of learning and of being able to talk to people like you and, and talk to scientists and advocates. So that really kind of helps me knowing that there are these incredibly smart people, right, who are working on these issues. Of course, for me, I'm, I'm a big nature lover, um, being outside and celebrating these spaces. That's certainly the way that I, that I de-stress and just being in nature and just appreciating, I think, what we have, knowing that we can't take it for granted. It is one of those things that is a constant practice, I would say. I think being in this space, being in media, and I know I think scientists as well, folks that are, are looking at climate change and its impacts, either from an ecosystem level or a social justice level or whatever aspect of this crisis you want to look at, it is debilitating. And 
I think acknowledging that and looking at that in the face and, and not pretending like this doesn't hurt. I think so much of journalism and other and other fields as well, uh, there is this culture of stoicism in the sense of we've got to just, you know, put our brave faces on and keep looking at these unfolding disasters. And I know that that is our job, but I think it's also really important to acknowledge the pain that's there and to be open and supportive of one another as we try to shine a light on it. Gabrielle, that was so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like I feel like for me being in the podcasting space of climate and sustainability, I've been able to learn a lot about a lot of things, but I would not consider myself a deep expert in the vast majority of topics that I bring up on the show. And that's why I like to speak with people like yourself who are experts in the space. And so similarly, I love the community aspect of it. I love recognizing that there are so many smart people doing really, really great work. And I'm glad that you mentioned like getting out into these spaces because I similarly love it. And it also freaks me out sometimes. Like I recently, I moved to Colorado last year and this was my first proper full ski season. Mm-hmm. Now that I think I'm a ski girl, I'm like constantly worried about snow melt and mm-hmm. snowpack. And every time someone like a stranger on a chairlift is like, yeah, it's been a warm winter. I'm like, God, should I talk about climate change with this person? You know, <laughs> and so it's like stopping yourself from spiraling when you're truly just enjoying an activity. Or I was recently in Moab, like, and everyone's talking about like, what a great time it would be to have a float trip this summer. But there was a wildfire warning. Mm. And I was like, God, guys, we gotta, we gotta talk about climate change. <laughs> and there's a, there's a level that you got to stop yourself and just truly enjoy being outdoors and enjoying that space. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it is hard. I, same thing. I was going to do a girl's trip last summer and we were like, okay, where can we choose that? You know, we wanted to do a float. We're like, all right, well, the rivers are too low. So like, where can we be where we know we won't get fired out or like, it's not going to be 120 degrees. And it is, it is one of those things where, yes, we're all adapting to climate change, whether we want to talk about it or not, but it is something that you do have to take a break from and enjoy, you know, what we have and, and these beautiful landscapes, even as they're changing and making room for whatever comes next, you know, keeping an eye obviously on the ball and and what our own impact is. But if you're, if you allow it to consume you to some level, I feel like it does become debilitating to a point. You aren't really empowered to continue working on it anymore. And so that's something I constantly am trying to stay conscious of in my, in my work and the way that it affects readers, right? The last thing I want to do is demoralize someone to the point where they just throw their hands up and they're like, well, Yeah, I completely agree. I feel similarly where I want to give people information, but I never want to make people feel like there's nothing they can do. And there are some big problems. Mm-hmm. Like today, we're talking about water policy. It's very hard to believe that me as an individual person has a huge influence over water policy, but there's a lot that I can do as an individual, as an advocate, as an educator. I've actually got a lot more options that I initially think that I do. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. Thank you. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining me today. I've had a lot of fun. I feel like I've learned a lot from you. It's been a treat. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gabrielle Canyon. I know I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. I hope that you learned something and it was valuable. If you enjoyed the episode, you've stuck around this long. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. 
And you can also rate us on Spotify. I had an issue last week where my feed refreshed and I lost all my ratings. And I want to be a five-star show over there too. All of my links will be in the show notes if you want to get in touch, if you want to hang out on social. And I will also have all of the links to our sponsors in our show notes. I got all of our codes down there. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I hope you have a fabulous, amazing, incredible, super great weekend. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.